My job in the CIA was to recruit spies and steal secrets. It was the best job on the planet. Two years in India, two years in Pakistan, and then a year and a half in Afghanistan, where I managed all of our undercover operations. Will B. Heard knows a thing or two about U.S. foreign policy and the importance of good information. He spent a decade working for the CIA. And I also had to brief members of Congress, and I probably briefed over 200 members. And I was pretty shocked by the caliber of our elected officials. And so I decided to run for Congress. Will Hurd also knows how to win office in a swing district and get things done in Washington. He served three terms representing a largely Democratic South Texas district as a moderate Republican. One of the things I always tried to do when I was in Congress was talk about issues we should be talking about, not necessarily the issues, you know, where it's always on social media or on cable news. And so I came up, you know, ultimately with what I call five generational defining challenges. Those challenges, along with Will's experiences in the CIA, in Congress, and now as a tech strategist, are important elements of his just-released book, American Reboot, an idealist guide to getting big things done. I'm Robert Pease, and this is The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization. We're going to talk with this idealist about some highly practical ideas he has for his party, his state, and country, including on tying legal immigration to U.S. labor shortages, creating foreign policy that restrains enemies but holds allies close, and making smart technology investments. We'll also hear how Will describes the magical transformation of congressional colleagues from friendly chit-chat to attack mode once those TV lights come on. But my first question for Will Hurd is about his own personal reboot, how he moved from the CIA to the U.S. Congress, though not on the first try. I appreciate you being diplomatic in your question because most people thought I had no chance at all to win when I first ran in 2009. And and it was for the 2010 election cycle. At that point, there had only been two CIA officers to have ever run for Congress. Also, nobody thought that a black Republican was going to be able to win in a 71% Latino district. I won the first round. There was five people running in the Republican primary. I think I won by like 900 votes, and then I went on to lose the runoff election by 700 votes. And it was tough. I thought I was going to win. The other side thought I was going to win. Um, All the newspapers went from saying I'm the next best thing to how this sucker lose, right? And so I thought I was done because the guy who went on to win beat the incumbent, and I thought he was going to be in office for a long time. But he lost. And when you come that close, 700 votes away, I called all, all the crew. I said, y'all, look, if you have one in you, one more left. I got one more left. And we decided to run again. Which was obviously the right choice. We have had two other former Congress members on the show, Jason Altmaier, centrist Democrat from Pennsylvania, Carlos Curbelo, centrist Republican from Miami. They both said things are dysfunctional in Washington, but there's some surprising pockets of cooperation. I would agree with their observations. I think post-January 6th, things were a little bit different. But when I first came to Washington, I was kind of shocked at how warm relations were between members. Uh, My first experience, I was at a committee hearing. I was on the Homeland Security Committee. 
and I'm introducing a, a, an amendment to a piece of legislation we were marking up. So this is a bill that's going to go out of committee before it goes to the floor for a vote. And I had never done this before. I wasn't in Congress before. I wasn't a staffer. So I didn't know how any of this worked. And so I was told, all you're going to have to do is read this thing, right? And it's going to be fine. Everything's been worked out. And then another member, a Democrat, another one from Texas, unleashes and starts like yelling and getting upset. And I'm sitting there looking around like, what the heck? And then when it was over, the amendment passes, we're walking out. And that member came up to me and put his arm around me. And he's like, hey, your office is right around the corner here. I said, yeah. And he's like, let me see your office. And then he walks me into his office, comes in the office, like takes some of the candy that we had put out. He, and then he comes into my individual office and plops down. He's like, how are you handling your mail? How are you handling your, your phones? Right? Like, and he was giving me all this guidance on how to be an effective member of Congress. And the whole time I'm like, man, you just was just yelling at me. Five minutes ago, right? It, it was such a surreal, strange experience. And, and another time, I, the first time I went on a Sunday show, I, I forget which show it was, and we were doing a roundtable. It was four members of Congress, two Republicans, two Democrats. We're in the green room, and everybody's talking, but like, how are your kids? And, and they knew we, they had all been in Congress for more than probably 10 years, all of them. And they're like, oh, would you like some, you know, some cantaloupe, you know, whatever kind of fruit was in the green room? And I'm like, wow, this is really nice. And I'm a couple months in. Then we get out. Lights come on. And it was it was like WrestleMania in there, right? And everybody started attacking. And, and when you go back and look at this clip, I'm sitting there kind of wide-eyed and, and a little shell-shocked because it was so jarring for me, right? And so there was a level of interaction that actually happens, but it gets less and less. And partly because everybody's gone, you're only in DC three nights a week, you go back to your district, people don't spend time together. Most of the time I spent with folks was on congressional delegation. This is when you're traveling somewhere together. And that's probably where you spend the most time. And so it's harder to yell at somebody when you know them. And it's easier to work with people when you know kind of who they are as an individual. And that's, look, I was able to get 21 pieces of legislation signed into law when I was in Congress. And part of it was because I always started with a Democratic partner, and I always had a Republican and Democrat in the Senate to work on these things. And so so it can't exist. It can't exist again, but it's going to require elected officials to, to really focus on solving problems and not just bomb-throwing. Yeah, well, speaking of bomb-throwing, we are doing a series on Texas politics and identity at a time of national polarization. And several of our other guests, we call them experts, really unsolicited. They said they were personally disappointed that you decided not to run. So could you tell us about who you talked to and how you made that decision? Well, who I talked to was me and my team, right? This was a personal decision. And, and when I ran the first time in 2009, I said multiple times in public that I thought you know, that there should be a shelf life for these positions, six, seven, or eight years. And when I evaluated after I won the last election, some of the opportunities that I had, looking at the ability to get things done, and was there other ways that I can be making an impact in our country, all of those things led to doing something else. And look, I appreciated 
the signs of support, the people that were disappointed, the folks that wanted me to stay in office, um, because that, that was a sign that I, I was doing something right. Now, I enjoyed talking about uh, technology in a policy setting. Now I'm talking policy in a technology setting. When I look at some of the major issues the country has to deal with, not just in politics, but what we ha- as a nation have to deal with, technology is a big one. And so to be on the cutting edge and helping some great companies that are going to be the future of our society, that are going to help us win what I consider to be a new Cold War with the Chinese government, that's exciting. And so there's more than one ways to serve, and I'm enjoying that opportunity. Well, great. So you've mentioned a new Cold War coming up with China. We may have a new hot war coming up with Russia on NATO's border. So we did want to quickly talk about foreign policy. It's on a lot of people's mind. We are wondering if in your estimation, perhaps the bipartisan foreign policy consensus that was in place for many decades unraveled post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan, recently under the Trump administration. Do you see that coming back together in a significant way because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine? I think it is, and I think it already has. And I would say Look, I I was in Congress, I won in the 2014 election, started in 2015. So I came into Congress after Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine for the first time. So you had a, a Republican House and a Democratic president. But we passed support to Ukraine back in 2015 with a majority of Democrats to try to encourage the Obama administration to do more in Ukraine. In 2018, In a Democratic House, there was a Democratic House with a majority of Republicans showing support to Ukraine then when a Republican was President Donald Trump and trying to urge the Trump administration to make sure that they were supporting Ukraine as much as possible. You're seeing similar kind of level of support for Ukraine in Congress right now. And look, this is a topic... You know, so the book came out before this current war, but but one of the sections is on foreign policy. And one of my conclusions I came to as a during my time in the CIA and being connected to national security for the last 20 years is that our friends should love us and our enemies should fear us. And that is something that we have gotten away from over a number of administrations. And we got to get back to because when America is leading the international coalition, when America is leading this international order that we helped establish, then things are better for America, but it's also good for the rest of the world. Well, let's talk about technology applied to another big problem that certainly affects your District 23, your former District 23, and that's immigration border security. In the book, you mentioned that building a wall is a third century solution and there are much better solutions. So tell us about how technology could help in the immigration gridlock. Immigration is an important issue. This is something I spent a lot of time on when I was in Congress. I think I was the only member of Congress that stamped visas. You know, that was my day job in some of my positions. And then I would go do my real job at night. And it's it's why it's one of the longest chapters in the book. Like, look, look at the place we are right now. We have a real crisis on our southern border. The amount of illegal immigration, the amount of, of drugs that are coming into our country is the highest it's ever been. And so streamlining legal immigration would help reduce some of that pressures that we're seeing on the border. When you look at every industry needs workers, every industry is looking to hire 
guess what? You know, streamlining legal immigration would help with that problem. If Florida needs agriculture workers and Texas needs hospitality workers, that should be based off of a need. The technology exists to do this. And then we can increase the number of those kinds of working visas, you know, based on that need in that particular location, that particular state. It's that simple. But the other option is also to, if a kid from China comes to University of Texas at Austin or Texas A&M University in College Station or Princeton or Stanford or wherever, and is a quantum computing engineer or getting a PhD in artificial intelligence, let's keep them here. If the Chinese are going to steal our technology, let's steal their engineers. And this is going to help us. And so we have a real opportunity to benefit from what I call the brain gain from all these other countries and get them here. It makes sense. It's good for our country. And this is one of the things that has made America so great and made us the place that so many people want to come. We have the honor and privilege this episode to be speaking with former CIA officer and three-term congressman will be heard about his new book, American Reboot, published by Simon & Schuster. Heard was a moderate black Republican representing a largely Democratic and Hispanic swing district. As he recounts in the book, Heard came to Washington to legislate, not throw rhetorical bombs across the aisle. With the 2022 primaries upon us, I asked Will Heard, well, what would it take to send fewer bomb throwers and more problem solvers to the U.S. Congress? So, look, I'm going to give you my magic wand answer, and then I'm going to give you the realistic answer of what can be done tomorrow. The magic wand answer is make a district no more than plus six in either direction, meaning don't make a district more than a 56% Republican or 56% Democrat. That's in essence a jump ball. And so in November, anybody could potentially win. So I was rewarded in my district. Look, my district flipped back and forth between Republican and Democrat for 10 years before I came into office and was the first one to hold it for three terms in a row in a long time. And if every Republican voted for me, I would still lose. I had to get independents. I had to get Democrats to ultimately vote for me. So when I solve problems, I was rewarded in November in the election. So if we can create districts to do that, but that's going to require 50 states to agree and to pass some of these things. So what can we do now? What can we do now? We got to vote in primaries. In 2018, the average number of people that voted in a contested primary RRD, 54,000 people. That's not a lot of people. In that same year, I think the average number of voters in a general election was about 267,000. So more people voting in a general election is not the pinnacle of civic activity. It's the floor. We need more people voting. And if you have 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 more people voting in primaries, that's a tectonic shift in the kinds of people that could potentially get elected. That is a huge point. We hope some folks are hearing that and making sure to mark their primary voting day. But we also want to talk a bit about identity, as in the Texas identity, traditionally so strong. We'd like to play a clip from our first episode in the Texas miniseries. This is Jason Whiteley from WFAA Dallas, the ABC affiliate. He's the co-host of Yolitics, 
He feels Texas identity may be weakening under all this red versus blueness. I remember covering the 2000 election for George W. Bush, then governor of the state of Texas. And there was still a, a firm that this was just what, four or six years after the uh, last Democratic governor, Ann Richards at the time, there was still a, a Texas identity then, this sense of uh, you know independence. This is how we do it in Texas. This is the model that works here. We can take it to Washington. But then you you ramp up 9-11 on top of that, and then the war in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan after 9-11. And that has really just sent Texans into one side or the other. Yeah, so we're wondering your thoughts on that, looking at these recent primaries where some candidates are, Republican primary candidates are looking for the endorsement of Donald Trump in Florida. Some others are looking for AOC's endorsement. That doesn't seem like a traditionally Texas thing to do. No, it is not. It is not a Texas thing to do. You know, we're used to, as Jason said, we're we're used to being independent, doing our thing, right? Do it our way. And so, look, if I were to try to dissect this, I would say a lot of elected officials are lazy, and they want to talk to or get the support of the person that has the biggest kind of partisans in their party. Okay, and so. Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez has a very vocal, big following, and Donald Trump does as well, too. So people appeal to that. But what I have found, and this is how a black Republican can win in a 71% Latino district, is that people want to be inspired by something bigger than themselves. And we forget that. It's hard to, to inspire. It's easy to fear monger. And so, you know, this is where the opportunity and the upside is for me. Two, despite what you're seeing on social media and cable news, when I talk to people and I crisscross this country and and I see a broad swath of it, folks want something different. And when 72, there was a poll out earlier this year, 72% of Americans think this country's on the wrong track. But if we get back to the basics, we get back to our values of freedom leads to opportunity, opportunity leads to growth, growth leads to progress, right? Like we're going to be successful. And to me, that's why I titled the book American Reboot. And it's not about starting over. It's about refreshing our operating system. And then we get back to that. And I do believe Texas has an opportunity to lead the way. Well, you do have a great Texas example in your book of bipartisanship among Texas congressional members. So could you tell us about your bipartisan road trip with the Democratic congressman at that time, Beto O'Rourke, and also the aftermath of that trip? Sure. So, you know, I talked earlier, I've gotten 21 pieces of legislation signed into law. The only way you do that is if they are done in a bipartisan way. My last bill was a national strategy on artificial intelligence. And most people say, oh, that should be easy. Well, there were seven committees that were responsible for some piece of that. So that means seven committee chairs, seven ranking members, there's seven staffs that have opinion on this. And so you had to navigate a lot of tricky waters. But the road trip you're talking about, I want to say it was 2018, 2017, 2018, Beto O'Rourke was a colleague of mine. We both represented parts of El Paso. I had invited him to San Antonio to... He was the only Texan on the VA committee, the Veterans Affairs Committee. And I had another a number of veterans groups in the district that wanted to talk to someone on the committee. So I asked Beto to come, and he said, sure. 
And this was one of the snowpocalypses of Washington, D.C., and his flight got canceled, and then mine got canceled, and we had votes in about 48 hours. And so Beto said, let's drive, and we can live stream the whole thing. And then I said, sure. Find out later, he never thought I was going to say yes. So we, the next day, we drive, 35-hour trip, 31 hours in the car, 29 hours live streamed. In that day and a half, we had 26 million viewers on our socials, I believe. And then we were on every news program, like literally every news program. The big storm here in the Northeast has done something many thought impossible, brought a Democrat and a Republican together. Their trip started here in San Antonio, taking them all the way to D.C. while live streaming the entire 1,600-mile journey. To have shared their trip on Facebook Live, they've gotten a lot of positive feedback, even from Facebook's founder. With Congress, especially the House, so sharply divided on everything from health care to taxes, they say members need to get to know people in the other party, the way it used to be. We won an award about civility, and then we, at the end we had signed on some legislation that we were both working on that we talked when we were in the car. And then he had an election and I had an election, and people criticized him for, for not endorsing my opponent, and people criticized me for not criticizing Beto and, and against his opponent. And um, it was all pretty wild. It was silly to me that we go from a moment where the entire country is like, wow, this is really cool, civility and politics. And then when it came to election, everybody went to their corners. But what I saw in that moment, right, the, the millions of people that were watching us, the American people want their elected officials to disagree without being disagreeable. And it was a reminder that way more unites us as a country than divides us. And if we talk and focus on solving problems around those issues that unite us, then the better off we're going to be able to be. That's former Congressman Will Be Heard just out with a great new book, American Reboot, an idealist guide to getting things done such as breaking through political gridlock on immigration and police reform. This is not just another My Time in Congress memoir. Heard's own personality resonates throughout, as do his experiences in the CIA before running for Congress and in the tech sector since leaving Congress. American Reboot is highly recommended. More in our show notes and on our website. And more from Will Be Heard, Will Be Heard, sorry, Will, had to do that once, in our next episode, along with each of our Texas miniseries guests in the Purple Principle finale on Lone Star State Identity Amidst Zero-Sum National Politics. What frustrates me with issue like policing reform or even immigration, right? Immigration, when you look at primary voters that are Democrat and primary voters that are Republican, this is what's called a 70% issue, where 70% of that group is supportive of it. But things don't get done because both sides would rather use some of these issues as a political bludgeon against each other rather than ultimately solve the problem. Please join us then. Tell a friend or colleague about our podcast. And please support us on Patreon or Apple subscriptions as we strive to cover more state-level political challenges this 2022 primary season. Special shout out this episode to our senior producer for audio engagement, Allison Byrne. She very likely helped you find us among the sea of podcasts out there today. 
In fact, how did you hear about the Purple Principle? That'd be really helpful for us to know. So there's a link in our show notes to provide that info. Special thanks, as always, this episode to our Texas-tinged composer, Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.